This podcast is sponsored by Barclay Estates and Management Bristol. Whether you're a landlord or a tenant, Barclay Estates and Management are committed to providing you with the best possible service. We provide a hassle-free service for landlords and access to properties all over Bristol and the surrounding areas. Welcome to Three Peeps in a Podcast, Robin's Reunited. This is episode three now. Episode one, we had Joe Bunnell and Danny Coles. Episode two, Gary Hours and Rob Edwards. But in today's episode, we're going to actually focus on some non-playing staff. Um, obviously, the academy at Bristol City is known all over the country. Um, and two men who were pivotal in the academy and um, did some great work in there were Dave Horseman and John Clayton, and they are today's guests. John, how are you first? I'm very well, Patch, actually. Yeah, feeling very, very positive about this uh, this podcast. Excellent. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and we'll come on to a bit of your backstory in a second, but I'll just bring Dave in. Dave, how are you, sir? Yeah, really, really good. Really looking forward to... Uh... Catching up on some old stories here today, Patch. Rekindling uh, your, your relationship for, with, with Mr. Clayton, I'm sure. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, so, John, first of all, pre-Bristol City, you had a very impressive career as a striker, starting at Elgin and some notable appearances, uh, notable career at Tranmere in the 84-85 season. 35 goals in 47 games. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that was my one really good season patch. Thanks for <laughs> highlighting that. Um, no, that was a particularly good season, but I, I suppose um, I should be really uh, known as one of these journeyman players, you know, that uh, travel around club to club. Um, yeah, I certainly wasn't any kind of outstanding player, but I managed to managed to scrape through for a few years, mate. Yeah, and you also had some time abroad as well. I remember F- Fortuna Sittard was uh, was one that um, with with was it Richard Sneakers you played with there. Yeah, I did Richard Sneakers. Yeah, I played with Richard for a couple of years. Um, who played in the Premier League? I think with West Brom and Bolton uh, had, a, had, a, had a good career. But yeah, I had four years in Holland. Uh, playing at Fortuna, and um, then I got moved on to Volendam, and then I came back and ended up at Burnley. That Burnley was my last club, so mm. yeah, I had a few clubs. I had a, a brief spell in Hong Kong as well, which was good fun. Excellent. Playing with some some really really good players out there. I mean, it was uh, I was only a young I was a young pro at Derby, and had an opportunity to go out there for one season. And um, when I went out there. You know, it was it was an opportunity to play games, and it was a you know a great chance to you know play in a different different environment, different culture, if you like. And, and when I got out there, Bestie was out there, George Best. Wow, he was playing for Hong Kong Rangers, and we had half the Brazilian or the old Brazilian national team were playing. Players like Adair was the left winger. I don't know if you maybe before your time patch, but anyway, he was a hell of a player. So he was out there and we had loads of Dutch boys, um, all internationals. Um, and the team I played for, uh, Tommy Hutchinson, Scottish international, uh, Barry Danes, the, Tottenham, the old Tottenham goalkeeper. Um, so it was, it, was, uh, you know, it was a great, great opportunity when I was a, a young, young player, you know. So, uh, yeah, I travelled about a lot and um, ended up at Brist- in, in Bristol. <laughs> I bet there's some stories you can tell of your time in Hong Kong and Holland, but but maybe we'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, that's uh, that's the after ten o'clock show. Patch, I can't believe he ain't got his golden boot in the background. I have this all he spoke about every day. Well, wait a minute, I'll go. Where is it? I'll be back in a second. Okay, your golden boot, John. I'm sure it, what what he doesn't realise this is audio only, so none of the listeners yeah, will will see. There it is. But there you go, Dave. It's just on the mantelpiece, on the side, you know. <laughs> Missed that one, John. And was that from... Uh, my caps. Was that from the Tranmere season? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. It was, um, uh, that was my one and only trophy. If you had to compare yourself and be kind to yourself, who to, to a striker in the current current climate, who, who would you be? 
That would be very difficult, mate. I can't think of anything. Hang on, Maybe... let me ask. Let me ask David. Let me ask Dave. Dave, who would you compare him to? I'm trying to think of one that don't run a running patch. <laughs> I can't think of one, but I'm sure there's one in the Premier League somewhere that gets sorted. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll we'll come... one, but he's not in the Premier League. He's in Division <laughs> Two. Absolutely. Well, but make keep thinking of that. And we'll maybe come back to that at the end. Yeah, um, so, so John, you say obviously you said you you came to Bristol, and that was uh, with your with your wife's work, I believe, um, and that's actually when we met. It was indeed, Patch. I remember it well, mate. That was when you had a full head of hair. All right, don't pick on me, crikey. <laughs> a long time ago, I think. In fact, it was, if I remember rightly, nineteen ninety. Five, I think yeah, it was. I think so. That we we came down to Bristol. I mean, I, I was at Burnley. I finished in '94, um, and then you know, basically was looking for something to do. <laughs> and fortunately for me, I have got a very very good wife who has had a, quite a good career as well. So she she was she she actually was offered um, to buy the franchise in the Bristol area for the Tupperware company. Uh, you probably remember Tupperware. I mean, everybody had Tupperware. So you probably, Dave, actually paid for some, some you know, paid half of my mortgage off, mate. <laughs> but anyway, so, so um, yeah, so Vanessa had, was, was in charge of the Tupperware company down here, uh, the franchise for the, for the Southwest Bristol region. And, um, and I actually just gave her a hand with that, which was absolutely brilliant. And of course, we met your wonderful mother there, Patch. Absolutely. You became a really, really good friend of ours with your dad and your family. And um, yeah, so it was it was good times. Yeah, I think my mum was once referred to as the Tupper Queen of the Southwest. <laughs> yeah, she did. She made me a lot of money, your mother, I tell you. <laughs> brilliant. Okay, we're moving swiftly on. Um how did you get involved with Bristol City? Uh, I, I know, I know your son was there, was there at the academy, and you went along, and that's yeah. how how it sort of grew, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, 1995. I think Jonathan was about 12, I think 11 or 12, and um, he had been actually he had played for Burnley when we were up there. He had played at the Burnley Academy up there, or the Centre of Excellence. And he was a good player. John John was a really good player. So when we came down here, he kind of got scouted quite quickly by Bristol City. And I was, was taking him up on a, a Wednesday night. It was the centre of excellence then. And I used to take him up on a Wednesday night. And after about four or five months of watching Graham Muxworthy and Frank Jacobs training the boys, and Dave, Dave knows these guys so well. And, you know, and Dave was a couple of years older than Jonathan. So Dave played, I think Jonathan went straight into the under... 12s or 13s. I think Dave was, was in the under 14s with Marvin Brown and Danny Coles and all of them. And um, anyway, so I, I was taking Jonathan up, you know, once a week. And at, at the end, after about six months, Pete Coleman, who's head of the Centre of Excellence, said, Oh, I've heard you're an ex pro. Do you fancy doing a bit of coaching? And I thought, Oh, well, I'm not sure I do fancy doing a bit of coaching. I said, But look, as I take him up once a week, well, you know, I, I don't mind doing a bit which uh, ended up leading to two nights a week, three nights a week, five nights a week, seven days a week. Um, and then one thing led to another. And then Tony, who was the, when we became an academy, Tony was the academy manager and um, offered me a job as, um, as, as uh, you know, as a, uh, one of the full-time coaches, which was brilliant, which ended up going on to be the under-16s coach, the under-18s coach, and then eventually the academy manager. Was so, that yeah. Tony Fulthrop? That was Tony Foster, yeah, who managed Bristol City for a time as well, of course. He did, yeah. Absolutely, okay. Um, let's go on to David now. Let's talk about how you got involved in Bristol City. And as as John's alluded to, you were actually um, in, in the YTs, as it was then. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, my career is nowhere near as, as good as John, because although he didn't run around, he was obviously good, and I was <laughs> terrible. Um, what was your position? Believe it, I played everywhere, basically. Wherever we needed somebody, they stuck me in. And I do remember, John might not remember, but my first ever trial session, you might know about 13 or 14, John was actually the coach. He was so bad to me, honestly, uh -huh. scarred me for it. He's the reason I never uh -huh. made it. I ruined his career. Basically, <laughs> you, I ruined his career. You've got, to Sorry, was, you've got to separate the wheat from the chaff, haven't you? I know, and he did it He did it really quick on the first night. But yeah, so my first session was 
uh, I can't remember what the name of the school is now. It's behind the triangle, the, the private school. They have the gym. Yeah. So I remember the first night. So got scouted a bit like John's son, uh, went on trial, eventually got signed patch and a couple of years as a schoolboy. Did my YTS, it was back then. Didn't, well, I wasn't good enough to get a pro. I couldn't, I couldn't run. I, I actually wanted to run, but I couldn't run. I was okay with the ball. Um, and then when, so I was struggling really patch. And I think it's all led to where I am today. I'm, I'm very grateful. Went to Bath Uni and played for Team Bath for a couple of years. And then, believe it or not, and I am going to mention him, I was on a boys' holiday with Danny Coles in Cyprus. Um, and we were on our way back and Pete Coleman again called me um, and asked me if I'd like to start coaching. And yeah, I did. I started with the under eights. Is that because he saw something in you as uh, in terms of coaching talent as well as, you know, obviously you were a player, but did you, did you display, you know, coaching abilities at that point? I, I think I must have patched without even knowing it. Um because if I'm being honest, back then, I mean, everybody thinks they've got a chance of being a professional footballer, and we all know how difficult it actually is. Um, but maybe I did show some sort of qualities, and, and Pete, Pete was really, really good to me in those early years because actually gave me a bit of a focus because I was going nowhere. I was playing a bit of non-league football and drifting around. Um, and then I started coaching for years, and then started at under eight, which was the best and the hardest age group to coach. Uh, worked my way up a little bit like John really and then I mean look, I'm only going to be nice to John once on this podcast but I owe everything really to him because without John John was the one who backed me gave me my first full-time job and and he taught me so much and then um, and trusted me so much probably looking back now I realise how much and I made some stupid mistakes when I was coaching some really bad ones but, but without somebody like John I wouldn't be where I am today so yeah, that was really my journey, slightly different to a lot of coaches, but but one that I think has probably made me a, a better person, better coach now. Fantastic. Um, so you were at Bristol City as a player. You you went away and you came back, um, and that was, I think, from 2003 to 2014, and you had various roles there, academy manager, under-18s, head of academy coaching. Um, and during that time, I guess that's when you crossed paths. Yeah, well, John, John actually hired me. So uh, I was probably part-time. I think Pete got me in. Tony then eventually, Tony Forthrop eventually asked me to do, I think, the 15s with Tristan Plummer and Josh Klein-Davis, John, remember? Yeah, it was a, yeah. a talented age group there. did a brilliant job for Tristan, mate. He's on Google Box now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's amazing. John, we produce all sorts, <laughs> don't we? And yeah. I saw Tristan the other day. What a great lad he is, by uh, the way. Well, not yeah. the other day, a little while. And yeah, they were my first one. We had, I remember the first game, I was actually really nervous. I, I took a bunch of boys, I wasn't even that much older than them, really. Um, and took them, we had Derby, we got beat 2 1, but they actually played quite well. And then I coached for a couple of years. And then I think, John, I don't know if you remember, I mean, you might be able to answer better than me, but an under 18 job, I think Graham stepped up to assistant academy manager. Is that right, Graham I mean, Maxworthy? When we were at Bristol City, I mean, I, I was the academy manager for a long time, but I never made any decisions on myself. It was always a team decision. It was that everything, any decision that was made, you know, I mean, I know the buck stopped with the academy manager, but when there was a decision to be made, it was always a group decision. And it was the same with hiring people. And I remember sitting down with, with uh, Pete and, and we were desperate to get Dave into the building on a full-time basis because he was such a good coach and such a good... You know, when you've got an ex-Bristol City player, ex-Bristol City scholar, they've gone, they've gone through the process. They know exactly what we're talking about, how we want the boys to behave, how we want them to play. Culture, yeah. You know, that culture of being a Bristol City player. And Dave epitomised that, you know, uh, along with a lot of the lads. And as soon as we knew he, he as soon as we got him in, and I think, to, like Dave said, Tony got him in, we could see how good a coach he was. And we thought, oh, right, how do we get them in full time? And um, I had a, myself and Pete Coleman had a discussion about, right, his, the plan for Dave's future, you know, where's he going to be in five to 10 years time? And our plan was to be, to Dave, for Dave to be assistant academy manager under me. The problem was 
because he hadn't had, he didn't have the the full qualifications yet, and he still had to finish his A license, and there were still things he had to do, and just gain a bit of experience. Because I think you were only about twenty four or twenty five or twenty six. Yeah, you weren't old. Yeah. Is that quite but, rare as well at that age, John? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And at that time, patch, I think I think there's a much younger, uh, much younger coaching cohort now than what it was back yeah, then, John. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I, and I remember sitting down with Pete and saying, right. How can we put a plan together to get Dave in this position in say three or four years' time? And and I was looking for an assistant. And there is a story behind this about you know one of the one of the managers at Bristol City trying to get somebody in to be my assistant. And Dave knows the story well. So I'm not going to go into it, but anyway, it was a bit of it, it was a uh, you know it was a tough tough time if I'm being honest because I was kind of being pressurised to give this managers meet a job mm. and i'm thinking for the best of the academy you know anyway eventually the plan was right we get graham muxworthy who had been with the club for ages ex-pro great experience in his mid to late 60s get him to be my assistant for three years until dave's got all his call and then we'll swap around so i explained all this to graham and mm. pete and auntie dave and um sure enough Three years later, Graham did a great stint as academy man, yeah. as assistant academy manager. It was absolutely brilliant, and is still at the club today as an eighty-four-year-old, still coaching the under nines and tens. Wow! I mean, most amazing man. I mean, I'll tell you a story later, Patch, about Graham Maxworthy when he was in his late seventies doing an overhead kick. <laughs> Never seen anything like true. The oldest man. <laughs> ever to to um produce the full overhead kick and he got up afterwards well just about <laughs> yeah i'll tell you what well me and dave were on the ground laughing i've never seen oh, it like it funniest thing i've ever seen oh yeah i'll never forget that but anyway so so graham did a great job for three years and and sure enough dave went on got his a license got his qualification three years experience working with the 16s uh, 15s and 16s and then Came in and became the under 18s coach, and um, and I ended up assisting Dave to be fair because he was so good at it. That's fantastic. So it worked out perfectly. So, so what year, sort of from two, were you two almost working side by side? Was I'm sure Frankie Artis was a under 19. Yeah, he played down. It was the year of the Arsenal FA Youth Cup where they beat us on penalties. Yes, I remember two, two, two. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we had a great team. Then the following year, we had the great FA Youth Cup run, which was unbelievable. So it was around the Tristan Plummer, Frankie Artis. There was some some top... Well, the players were so good, weren't they? Yeah, we had a great... Yeah, we, we had two or three great years with players coming through. Frank Artis, James Wilson played, Christian Ribeiro. Yeah, um, yeah it, was a, it was a good... Uh, Good, good and then we had a good four or five years, John, didn't we? So you were together a good four or five years. Um, in yeah. that four or five years, there must have been a number of players who made it, a number of players who didn't make it. Um, pick out and before we talk about specific players, what what is the difference between those players that make it and those players that don't? I've got sort of written down here. It's it's probably a mixture of skill, ambition, and attitude. Would that be sort of accurate, John? Yeah, yeah, just about patch. I mean, you know, the boys come in at schoolboy level. When you get them in, and you can get a nine-year-old in, and you know, when they come into the, your club at first, you look at you look at all these these young boys coming in, and they've all they're all good players when they come in, but it's such a small percentage that go all the way through. And come out the other end as either pros, first team players, or being sold on to to another club. And it is it's such a difficult profession to go all the way through and play in a play in a first team and make a living from it. I mean, Pete Coleman did stats. I remember him coming up with stats one year and saying to me, John, he said, Do you realize it's it's more difficult to become a scholar than it is to get into Oxford or Cambridge? Why? And I said, look, Pete, I don't know where you've got these. He says, I've done all the stats. He says, I'm telling you, it's more difficult to become a scholar, a football scholar, than to get into Oxford or Cambridge. Anyway, it, it is really difficult. But when you're looking at young players, yes, they need good technique. To go, to go on and play in a first team, they need good technique and they need good technical awareness. But 
me and Dave have seen players that that come through every single year. We see players with good technique and good awareness and and good on the ball and good passers. But the biggest thing, if they haven't got the right attitude, they're not going to go all the way. They're not going to go through and and be able to play in your first team and be sold. So the biggest thing for me is the attitude of of, of that player. You know, I guess Dave, you can you can coach skill, um, attitude. You can help. You know, you can help change attitude, but it's in the person, I guess. And ambition, I think that's innate to the person as well. So where can you as coaches sort of point people in the right direction? We, we've we actually had a, uh, I've had a meeting about this today with, with the current group I'm working with. So I think there's a couple of things and, and I think you're both spot on, really. I mean, to be a professional footballer, I think you have to have an obvious super strength. So... That doesn't matter what it is. You might not be very talented. You might be an unbelievable leader, winner, athlete, and, and it takes all sorts to make a decent team. So I think you have to identify the super strengths. I think too often now, I think we work on weaknesses. Now, if the weaknesses stop you playing, you have to work them. But if your weaknesses are they're copable in the Football League, Premier League, that's okay, but you've got to give somebody a manager has to select on what they're bringing to the team that the current pros already haven't got. But there's no point having them because you've already got a load of players playing. Mm. So I think as coaches, we there's a must-haves to get. We we call it so we're currently we're, we talk about going over the hedgehogs pitch one and two where the first team train. So there's must-haves. They're given. There's, there's attitudes. There's effort. There's desire. All those things are must-haves. If you ain't got them, you ain't playing the game. Then if you ain't got super strength, the manager ain't picking you because you don't know what you bring to it. Um, and I think that's one, coaches have to identify that. And two, they have to be really skilled in how to take a strength into a super strength. Otherwise, nobody's replacing um, Bentley in goal for Bristol City. Now, if, if Max O'Leary can't take crosses better than him, make big saves at crucial, he's not playing so I think they're they're the things that the coaches have to identify and work and and be really really straight with the players on on these these areas and make them the best they can be. Fair enough, yeah. No, that's to great. be fair, Dave, Max O'Leary is a great, you know, he's a great one to talk about because, and you might not know this patch, but Max O'Leary came into our academy as a under ten, I think, something like that, as a centre half, and he was a centre half, and he played centre half till he was under 14s and under 14 we had you know an absolute brilliant attitude brilliant attitude would run a mile would run through a brick wall for you yeah and but as, as an under 14 we Dave and Ali Hines the the goalkeeping coach who's still still at Bristol City today we had all highlighted that Max was a good player good center half good with the ball but just not a very good athlete not a very good runner and I can remember us having a discussion as we did about all the players and sitting down and saying, right, what are we going to do with Max? And he used to turn up at training, Max, and it was funny, he used to go on goals before the boys would, before we'd start training. And you know what it's like, you'd turn up, everybody's shooting at him. And Max was making all these saves. And I remember Ali saying one day, has anybody seen Max in goals? He's unbelievable at the start of training. So Dave said, well, let's give him a go. Let's give him a go in goals. And we said, well, are you sure? Anyway, so we had this discussion when he spoke to his dad and said, and it wasn't me, I never spoke to him, I think it might be Dave or Ali, but he spoke to his dad and said, look, we're thinking of giving Max a game in goals. We'll still do outfield play with him, but we'll give him a go in goals as well. We'd like to have a look at him. And his dad wasn't happy at all, really yeah. wasn't happy. And we said... But he is we now. Think, yeah, yeah. He, was a cricket, he was a cricketer for Gloucester as well. Yeah. So, um, anyway, um, he ended up going in goals. And the thing was, and the way we like to play, the great thing about him was you could play back to him. Yeah. And he could control it with his feet and he could play out the back. We wanted to play and he could play out the back and he could ping it into midfield and he would hit your centre foot. You know, so he could do everything with the ball at his feet. He just had to get used to playing in goals. And he ended up, well, he's ended up being an absolutely brilliant goalkeeper and making a, making a great living. That is a, a fantastic story because for, for me... I was almost a little bit upset when we signed Dan Bentley because I thought this was Max O'Leary's yeah. chance. Um, yeah. And and not many clubs have got two number ones. I don't see him as a number two. I see him as a number one. Yeah. And the other day when David Bentley um, 
uh, sorry, Dan Bentley got, uh, was, was ill and couldn't make it. And I saw Max in the team that I had no concerns whatsoever. And I don't think any city fans would have done because they knew that Max was a ready made number one. Yeah. And, and he's got personality, John, hasn't he? Max, he's got almost a, what Max has got, I think is, is a level of confidence. It's not arrogance. But he has a confidence, even the way he stands in goal, he looks confident. So I think that brief in a goalkeeper, that's massive. I think that's one of the big, biggest successes, John. Yeah. That one, that, that's one of the stories when I was driving home. The thing is, Dave, if you remember, the year, we, we struggled so much with goalkeepers. We just oh, couldn't God. get, we had few players in the academy, but we couldn't get a goalkeeper anywhere. And we ended up, I mean, we ended up getting getting Max and Juju in the same year, which was unbelievable. Yeah. Ali Hines was, well, I was saying pulling his hair out, but he ain't got any hair, but, you know, he would have been pulling his hair out because he'd been he'd been working with keepers for ages and couldn't find one. And then we get two, it's like a London bus, yeah. two turned up. And just, you know? just to be fair, obviously, to, to Dan Bentley, he has he's player of the season this season. And, oh, and, and what a great role model for Max to be watching from the sidelines and p- picking stuff um, off from as, as well. So, uh, yeah. And Max is a young goalkeeper. You need those really positive influences. I mean, I don't know Dan Bentley, but I would imagine he's a really good character to have around. Yeah. His, his name in the game is really good. So it'll make Max a better goalkeeper long term. And so I agree with you. But Max will go on and be a first team keeper somewhere. If it's not yeah. Bristol City, he'll play league football somewhere at a good level. Yeah, and it, obviously it de- depends a lot on on if we can secure Dan Bentley's future because he's got to be the, the best goalkeeper in the championship and, and premiership yeah. teams will start sniffing around. Yeah. Um, I think the next time Max gets in, Patch, will be important for him because he's at that age now where he needs to say, right, I am now going to be the first team goalkeeper, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and with with um, with goalkeepers as well, like, you know, like Max O'Leary, there's no longer that, I remember sort of going down on a lunchtime to watch the reserve team play. And now there's the under 23s and the under 18s, but, but Max isn't involved there. And he played in the cup, but now we're not in the cup. It's only when Dan Bentley gets injured or gets gets ill uh like he did last week that he gets that opportunity for you john um what what do you what do you think about that new model because obviously when you played i'm sure there was a reserve team and players would be put in there and on the odd occasion you will see a first teamer in the under 23s why has that model changed and and what do you think about that the problem you've got, Patch, and Dave probably knows more more about this than me at the moment because he is now the under-23s uh, head coach at Southampton, so he's dealing with this on a daily basis. But the problem that academies have had and still have is this grey area between the under-18s and the first team. And there is, there is a gap, you know, there is a big gap. Very few players come through an academy system and and at 18 years of age is good enough to go and step up up and play week in, week out at first team level. It's as simple as that. Very few do it. it. Wayne Rooney, Ryan Giggs maybe, but you name, you know, an an 18-year-old who goes in and plays every single week. It, It just doesn't happen very often, you know. So they need somewhere to go on and to keep developing. Now, if you haven't got a really strong loan process that you can get your players out to, yeah, you know, conference teams or or teams around that, maybe Conference South, Conference North. I say conference, it's the National League now, of course. The na- National League teams um, or Division Two teams, maybe, you know. If you can't get them out there, then you've got a group of maybe six, seven, eight players in your club who are not playing games. So the under-23 system does work as far as providing them with a very, very good standard of of play. And Dave will tell you this. We had a discussion about this the other day. I mean, Dave will tell you how difficult it is because Southampton in the Premier League are playing against your Man City's, Man United's, Arsenal's, Chelsea's. And I mean, over, over to you, Dave, you tell us how difficult that is to play uh, at that level. So, Patch, it's been, it's been an incredible experience this year. I, I... I've been lucky, so I followed my son through to probably the best academy in the country and watched how good they are. I think there's a bit of a myth, if I'm being totally honest with 
I think there's a real value to having senior pros like the old reserves. But then sometimes with the old reserves, actually, you couldn't get a young lad in it, only one. So while you're developing one, actually, what about the late developers that, that aren't getting any game time anywhere? So there's always a trade-off. We have played some teams this year. The teams are worth in the B team £70 million. Pounds, and they got one player for £35 million. We're playing Damari Gray, um, Jack Clark at Tottenham we've played. The level that your young players are getting tested against, particularly at Cat 1, I have to say is incredible. It is incredible. The, the level, like you have got to be, you've almost got to be an international to survive now. I'm not sure that was the case. And I, I'm, I'll be honest, you look at the England 21s now, I'm not sure the country's ever been healthier in terms of talent. They've left out 10 players that are outstanding. Um, I'm not sure we've ever done that, but there is still a value in training and playing with the senior pros. And there's certain things they can teach that no coach could teach. And I think it's those in-game moments that the old reserve system was better. And I'll give you an example. We've played, I watched Bristol City's youth team the other night on TV. I thought they did great. I spoke to Trev in Tins after the game. And they found a way of winning. And it's under 18s, I understand it. But at 23s level, you've got um, a more experienced pro, one or two in the team. They can actually teach you how to see out a game. And I think that's that's where you get the value of the old reserve system. You might not get so much of that now in 23s football. So, so it's probably not perfect, Patch, like you're saying, but that that it's it's really good to have under 23s football. But ideally, the boys playing against senior pros as well. So if you could get some mm. kind of system that 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 marries them both together, it would be perfect. But it's, it's this gap between 18s and first team that is the conundrum that is still has still not been uh, 100% sorted, you know? Yeah. I I asked Joe I asked Joe this question in episode one and he because he said his debut he played against yeah. Paolo Di Canio and Trevor Sinclair. So how 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 is you know a player coming through going to ever experience that when you've got Paolo Di Canio, Trevor Sinclair playing playing in the West Ham reserve team? Yes. So you know that it is yeah. trade offs. So um, let's let's go back to um, to to your your time working together. Pick out some players for me, maybe Dave first, that um, that, that that made it that we would obviously know about oh, today. Well, I mean, there's two great stories. So we've already spoke about Max O'Leary, but I, I mean, John needs the credit on this one. I think Zach Viner needs huge credit because I'm going to be honest, we had a... When when the academies come in or the, the new system, the triple P system, obviously the management changed. And I think Zach Viner was considered really soft. Um... And I think there was a particular academy manager, I won't mention his name, but let's be honest, on the podcast, who talked to, could not see his super strength, which clearly is athleticism. And actually, his technique was very, very good. But Zach needed time. So I think there are two that are currently in the um, first team. Now, I think, I think they took real imagination from people to be able to see players, because I think it was too easy to say that Max wasn't athletic enough to be a centre-back. And that... Um, Zach Viner was too soft. And I mean, I can remember the conversations in, in John. So I think there are two highlights. I mean, two of our favourites, John, and we'd be lying if we didn't say was our favourites, are definitely Bobby and Joe. And it had nothing to do with the fact they made it. But as people, they are they are everything you hope to produce in people. And because they're good people, I think they're even better players. So they would be for it would be really well spoken about. Um, it, it, I think people like John and our current old staff had, had huge um, parts to play in their development. I'm just going to stop you there. I've actually got Joe Bryan here now. Hey, there he is, look. Bloody hell. Dave and John. <laughs> what a duo. Um, they, yeah, they, they have obviously had a massive influence on my um, career. They were pivotal in my coaching from sort of 13 to, to to 20, well, 18, 13 to 18, I'd say, in in some really, really um, different manners. I think uh, John sort of instilled that kind of mentality that sort of jumping up to the first team, that kind of, um, yeah, that kind of sort of grit and determination showed us that that's what you needed to, to, to kick on. And, uh, and Dave just sort of, 
general really just general tactical technical everything helped me develop massively and I'd say they're both one of the if not the biggest influence on my career and uh me and Dave fell out once we uh <laughs> I'll let him tell the story he uh let's say a ball got kicked him uh he can tell that one and I think I've got one about John as well I vaguely remember Birmingham City away a kit bag being kicked across the room at me, but oh, oh, think about that. It's amazing. It's amazing. He, he makes me laugh, Joe. I tell you, he's such a you, you know. The thing is about Bobby and Joe, and they probably were the best two players that that, that we work with. Just talking about uh, some of the stories there that that Joe mentioned, and 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 how is that to hear from you, from Joe Bryan? Um, you know, someone who who has gone on, you know, past Bristol City. Unfortunately, we couldn't get to the Premier League with him, but saying that you guys were the were the biggest influence on his career. How does that make you feel, Dave? Yeah, really, really proud. I mean, I mean, Joe, Joe. I mean, had those super strengths. I mean, the, the story. I'll tell you the story because I have to tell it. So we're in training. He's only an under fourteen. And it was a really competitive group. John, the most talented group we had, we had so many good players. And um, yeah. the, the story, the long and the short story is that I'm refereeing now, so I've let him have a 5v5 at the end of the train. The standard was crazy. Cameron Brown, Bobby Medijuve, Omar Lindsay, these kids were a joke. And some from, we used to train at the City Academy in Eastern, and they had some lived from around there. They come from all around anyway. Standard was crazy. I give two bad decisions. They were terrible decisions against Joe. Next thing, so I turn around to get a ball. And as I stand up, a ball comes flying past my head. If it would have hit me, it would have hurt a lot. And I turn around and Joe's acting like he ain't kicked the ball at me. But I know it's definitely Joe because he's such a winner. Like even in a silly little 5v5. So I actually, that night, believe it or not, uh, we had about 10, 15 minutes ago. I sent him home. I said, no, nah, we're not having that. Like, off you go. And his dad made him ring me up that night and apologise. It was it was genius, and he was he was so sheepish for about two weeks afterwards. So, uh, yeah, he was just a winner. But it's, it's a really proud moment because I think, listen, we have influences on these kids both ways. And and like this, the Joe stories are brilliant. You could have probably found twenty people that hate me because unfortunately we can't please them all, but you just tried to give them a good That's journey. Funny, funny you should mention that. We've cool. got, I'm joking. <laughs> well, don't do that to me. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> John, coming to you, kicking a kit bag across the room at Birmingham away. Anything you want to tell us about that? Yeah, you know, it's a passionate game, football. And yeah, yeah. I think one of the frustrating things with football is when you, when you see the boys not fulfilling their potential, you know. And sometimes every now and again they need a little bit of a livener up. Of course, nothing, nothing over the top. But uh, you know, kicking a kit bag now and again doesn't do any harm. But but go, going back to to Joe and, and, and to Bobby Reed as well, the the one thing that they both of those guys had just a brilliant, brilliant attitude. I mean, Bobby's technique was superb, and so was Joe's. But their attitude—they never missed a night's training. Pat. Seriously, they never missed a night's training, and. When they trained, they trained flat out, 100% flat out, like most of the boys did, to be fair. But they just had that little bit more ability to take it to, to, take it to that next level, you know. And, uh, I mean, with Bobby, Bobby could have been released, seriously. Bobby could have been released by Bristol City very easily because he was the smallest. Both of them, actually, were, were the smallest in their age groups. And... When we got to handing out scholarships, and I can remember sitting down as a group again, myself, Dave, Pete Coleman, Graham Muxworthy, Ali and Trevor, and we sat down and we come up with a plan of how to keep Bobby in the system as long as possible. Now, I know if we had passed this on to, you know, the, the, to the first team coaches and man, they, they, they probably wouldn't have even taken them, honestly. I can't even remember who the first team manager was at that time, but I know nobody was shouting about Bobby. Um, anyway, we came up with this plan to say, look, let, let's delay his scholarship for a year. So we'll sign him. We will sign him. But instead of giving him a two-year scholarship, we'll give him a three-year scholarship, basically. But nobody knows about it except us. So we couldn't say anything. We could, you know, And our plan was, let, let's just keep him in the system 
for an extra year. And in that third year, hopefully, mm. if we do our jobs right, he'll have grown a little bit. We'll get him in the gym. And, you know, you talk about two boys going into the gym. I mean, Bobby and Joe were just unbelievable in the gym. And what they, you know, how they built themselves up was brilliant. Anyway, so we did that with Bob. And, of course, we got to the end of his second year. And all of a sudden, he just kind of flourished, you know. And he just grew into this player that he is today. And... Um, so it worked out brilliant with him. But the one th the one story about Joe that I'll never forget, we went to, we drew Crystal Palace in the FA Youth Cup at uh, Sellers Park. And Joe was a schoolboy. And he was that good. And, and we, we all agreed, look, he needs to play. He's, he's going to be one of our best players. Let's get him in. Don't, we don't worry about ages. Anyway, I think that was the time. And I think this was Dave, to be fair. Dave came up with playing him left back. Because Joe was a forward, he was a midfield player, a left winger, centre forward. We played him everywhere. Um, but Dave says, look, let's get, get him in the team. We'll, we'll play him at left back. So he plays him left back at Crystal Palace. Who's he playing against? His, his first ever FA Youth Cup match, Wilfred Saha. <laughs> so he's got Wilfred Saha right away. Wilfred Saha is a second. Joe's a schoolboy. Wilfred Saha is 18. And, and playing in Crystal Palace's first team, by the way. And we go out, and I'm, I'm saying to Dave, Dave, have you seen who's playing right wing? It's only Saha. He said, oh, gee whiz. He says, maybe maybe we shouldn't have played Joe. Oh, gee whiz. What's going on? If I tell you, Joe never gave Zaha a kick that night. Right. Never gave him a kick. We ended up, we drew 2-2, two, two, got beat. I think we got beat an extra time, actually, oh, or, or penalties. But, um, but Joe was brilliant. And from that moment on, if you had any doubts about Joe being a pro footballer that, that night, you know, just guaranteed this guy is going to play, you know, at a real high level, you know what I mean? I bet it's no surprise to you, uh, Dave, that, that they're both in the Premier League now. No, no doubt. And it's just a shame they didn't go to Bristol City, really. Um, and and like John said, I mean, there's, there's some of the stories. I remember, the, like, you know, you remember the breakthrough games. So Bobby Reid played at home against Portsmouth. John, remember, Keith Millen was watching and yeah. literally, it was Bobby Reed v Portsmouth, and we had other good players, but uh, it was like a Royal at Rovers display. And that, that was the time when John was talking about he'd become a second year, and and whether it was physical and a penny just dropped, he was he was magnificent for a few weeks. And luck plays a huge part. So it just so happens that the first team didn't have a game, or was at home. The first team managers watching, and and one thing John and Pete used to do really, really well was. Sometimes when you push a player on the manager, because it's not their decision, they try to find something not to like not to like about them. So actually quite tactically, and John, John was really good at this. And John fought for so many players. But there was just that time where actually, because we were still waiting, John, really, for Bobby to really crack it. We never mentioned it. So the manager felt like at the time it was his idea. And then I think he made his debut at the end of the season against Hull. Is that right? Yeah, he played the he played the last thirty minutes against Hull, I think. Which was like from like, I mean, the system was so different; it was so harsh. So all the all the old reserve stuff was great, but you had two years, and no matter whether you were small, big, slightly more immature, and more mature, at the end of two years, that was you done. So people won't understand this unless they worked in the environment. To find Bobby Reed an extra year was nothing short of brilliant in terms of coaching and, and player development. It's just, it was an unbelievable idea that probably nobody's ever done before. It was crazy. And, mm. and like you say, you watch him now, I mean, Bobby, and I'm surprised Joe doesn't play more at the moment. I don't know why, but somebody's going to probably get a good player at the end of the year. Um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And the goal is Joe scored at Wembley to get him up. Oh. We've seen him do stuff like that every week throughout the school wage groups, John. It was crazy. Really? Yeah, no, yeah, it was a cracker. I, mean, I know we're talking about those two, Dave, but I mean, the, the amount of good players that have gone in and played in Bristol City's first team that have come out of the academy, you know, I think the only thing that frustrates me or frustrated me a little bit, and we used to talk about this a lot, because, I mean, Pete Coleman used to do a, a roster of all the players that came in each scholarship year. So if they made a scholarship, you'd keep all the teams... And he, he stuck it on my desk one day after about, it was probably about 15 years after having started as an academy. And I went through every year and every year had players playing in Matty Hill, Danny Coles, Leroy Lita, 
um, Scotty Goldborn. I mean, it was just page after page of players who had gone on, played in the first team, been transferred, made money for the academy. And um, I think the only thing that frustrated me was a, a little bit was just the fact that we never produced anybody that went on to play top international for England. You know John, I mean? can I stop you now? Because Lloyd, Lloyd Kelly will get... There'll, go, there'll be a lot of credit. I was just going to speak about him. But Lloyd Kelly's close, as close as anybody's been or going to yeah. be. And... And I would stop you in terms of what happened, Patch, what you need to be the best youth um, system. You don't need all the best players. You don't need all the best facilities. You don't even need the best coaches and sports scientists that everybody's got now. You need a manager to trust the players. So Christian Ribeiro and Tristan Plummer should have made the club crazy money. But we never had a manager that wanted to play for whatever reason. And he'll have his reasons and... But without those people that are willing to give them the final step, you've got no chance. Obviously, we've been through a number of managers um, in the time that you guys were, were there. Different managers seem to have different attitudes towards youth. Lots of them like to go with experience. I think in, in Dean Holden, um, in the current climate, he was up for giving the youth a chance. And we've seen um, this season in particular, Tyreek Backinson, uh, Zach Viner more, more and more, more and more involved. Antoine Semenyo has, has, has had a great season. Um, and then more lately, we've seen Sam Bell, Sam Pearson, Riley Taylor, and Awara Edwards come through. So this season, we've seen the most amount of, of young talent coming through. And it's been, it's been great to see. Um, but there's, there's managers that, that aren't as willing to give those cha- those guys a chance and, and you know, it, every manager is different. I'll be honest with you, I've been in football all my life and, and youth development for half of it and it is a very difficult job working in an academy. I, I, you know, I can tell you that and it can be a very, very frustrating job because you can be doing a really good job and you can be, be producing a lot of really good players but at the end of the day, and this is the big word in youth development, if there is no opportunity, then you are basically banging your head against a brick wall. Now, mm. I, was, I was at Bristol for 17 years. I spent at Bristol City, and I think about eight years as academy manager. And most of the managers there were really good, good football managers and good guys. Some of them were pro-academy, some weren't. And it... it, it when you get a manager who's not pro playing young players, and I can understand why they're not, because their job, they're six games away from losing their job. It's as simple yeah, as that. I was going to say that. Was that did that correlate with with the position that the team was maybe in terms of they were fighting to stay up or they were on the cusp of of promotion, and as you say, they sometimes opt for that. That, that experience of performing yeah. when they need to versus the bedding in period. Yeah. Um, look, there's, there's various reasons why managers don't play, for, don't play young players. Some of, some of it is because they haven't signed them. Now, and, and I'll give you a scenario. You've got a really good young player coming out of the academy who's 17 or 18 years old and he's ripping it up. And you've got a player who a manager has signed for three or 400 grand, okay? Now, that player that the manager has signed for three or four hundred grand has been in the club for, say, six, eight, ten months, maybe a year, and everybody's worked out. He's just not quite good enough. He's, not, he's nowhere near as good as the young players coming through. But the manager keeps picking him and keeps putting him on the bench where he's not putting academy players on the bench. Now, why does he do that? Simple. Because he paid 600 or 700 grand for him and his job's on the line. So why would I put? Why would I endanger my job by introducing a young player that they've developed? Do, do you know what I mean? Now, that may be a bit harsh, but that is the reality of what you're dealing with. I think what you need, Pat, well, what Bristol City have now, for example, they have a really good link. I spoke to him today, actually. So they, they have Brian Tinian. Now, Brian Tinian was a, a great Bristol City man. Everybody knows him. But what he does, he has a passion for the young players real passion for the young players but he also has the ear of the bosses and the bosses aren't necessarily the managers and what he does he provides a great link and I think I think they've managed Bristol City have done a brilliant job at um, providing that link with somebody they trust um, 
And what that has then done is when he says a player he thinks is ready or good enough is, is somebody that, and, and whether that's right or wrong, because actually most people on me in youth football are really honest, they wouldn't push a kid if he wasn't ready good enough because that ain't going to benefit anybody. I think Bristol have a brilliant link and they've had him for a couple of years and he does a really, really good job at the loans part, keeping people in and then just communicate with the management and um, maybe the ownership or whatever that looks like. And, and I think they're in a really, really healthy position at the moment, which is why you're seeing and watching their youth team the other night. I think they have more coming. Um, I mean, I went back for a second stint and I worked with quite a lot of them and there are some super players coming, some really good ones. Whilst we're on the subject of Brian Tinian, I had a question in from Brian for John. He wants to, he wants to know, when you were his neighbour, how did you always get home before him and have your golf clubs in your hand ready to go out? Uh, well, we were next door neighbours for a while, actually, Brian and me. And I'm, I'm so glad to see him back at the football club because he's Bristol City through and through, Brian. And I can remember when he was a manager. And, you know, it's such a shame, really, because he just got the job at the wrong time, Brian. It, you know... Can't say no, can you, when you get that opportunity? A bit like Dean Holden. You're absolutely right, Patch. You can't turn it down. But, you know, if you had taken any advice from Tony Fawcett, who was a good friend of Brian's, I think Tony would have probably said, look, don't take it, because you're you're just not ready for it. And I think if you give Brian, if you, if you give him, give Tins the job now, where he's, you know, in his mid-50s or over 50, I mean, he's got all this experience, management experience, you know, he'd probably be a really good manager now, you know, and and when he got it, he just wasn't quite ready for it, you know, but I remember, well, bloody, we used to go scouting together and Tony would pick us, me and Brian up, you know, drop us off the same address, obviously, and uh, we'd be out scouting for players and everything. It was brilliant times, I've got to say, but it was just such a such a shame. Absolutely. Um, and with the with the, the situation we're in now where you can have so many substitutes, um, that must be great for, for 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 you, Dave, in your current role, that you can there's almost a bit more light at the end of the tunnel for these young players because you know, going back um many years, it was two subs, three subs. Now we're up to what, seven, nine subs. Uh, that must be great for for you, Dave, to say to these players, look. You know, we we can get at least two or three youth team players on the yeah, bench. Yes, it's, it's unbelievable. And I think the whole country has seen this this big spike, obviously because of the sub numbers. Obviously, the football league, <coughs> excuse me, the football league obviously can put more subs on than the Premier League. But even in the current role I'm in now, we've had eight regularly, eight regularly on the bench, and and what that's probably done is made our teams' results suffer, especially the league we're in. It's very unforgiving. Actually, what's winning in youth football? Surely is Sam Bell getting minutes, Riley Taylor. I mean, Riley Taylor, John. How good was Riley Taylor at oh, eight years old? He was crazy, wasn't he? What, what a left foot. One, there's one. So, yes, yeah. I think to, I mean, the league and the rules have, have meant that there's even more light at the end of the tunnel for even more players and more opportunity. So, yeah, the boys are excited and actually it probably has up the enthusiasm levels because you're not fighting for one place anymore. You might be able to get two or three. And with COVID being as it is, probably across the country, mm. we've had a ridiculous amount of debuts. So it's it's been brilliant for the young players and they've had a, an unbelievable experience. If there's any good to come out of this. Excellent. Okay. Um, um, before we uh, sort of come on to what you guys are doing now, were there any players that that you were surprised at that you that you necessarily didn't think had the skill, the the ambition, the attitude, that right blend that all of a sudden sort of came from left field and 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 got into you know, a professional contract at the last minute? Was there is there anyone that that really sort of surprised you? I don't know, John. Do you want to go um, first? Well, and this just shows you how things can change a little bit. One of the best age groups we had, and it was Dave's stepdad's age group, J uh, Jacob's age group, and they were about under 12 or 13. And there was Jacob and there was... Um, oh, Herbie. They went to Liverpool. Herbie Kane. Herbie, Herbie Kane. And there was George Dowling. And, Lloyd uh, Kelly. Was the, yeah, Lloyd and Lloyd Kelly. Now, Lloyd Kelly was probably, at that age, 12, 13 foot, probably about the fourth or fifth best player in that age group. If, if I'm being honest, Dave, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. He was the fourth or fifth best player. Now, 
it just shows you that 12, 13, 14, you, you can't get too far ahead of yourself because Lloyd Kelly has ended up probably, along with Jacob and Herbie, or, who are all playing pro, you know, Jacob out in Portugal and, and Herbie at Hull or Barnsley, you know, they're playing at a great level. Um, but Lloyd actually has almost jumped above those two for, for the moment and, and playing in the Premier League and now, you know, Championship with Bournemouth. But mm. you wouldn't have put a fortune on Lloyd doing that, you know? Do you, do you, yeah, and, and obviously working with youth like you both have and, and both still do, um, is there is there any value in in analysis in terms of that sort of, you know, that chart in terms of where they are, where they get to? Some people sort of go along and then big jump. Is there any science? To yeah, there, there is actually. Um, yesterday, the FA shared some, something with, with us. Um, they've tracked what they call world-class players. Um, so Harry Kane, Raheem Sterling, um, maybe Phil Foden, for example, coming through now. And the amount of games they played in youth football and, and at what point they will take off. There is, there would appear to be five five paths. Your 17-year-old, one of the kids, your, your 20-year-olds who take a little bit more time, the ones that need to go out on loan four or five times, and then like your late developers or just popped out of nowhere like a... so. It would appear that they follow those. How and when they pick up those paths, and you can jump from path to path, but generally you you follow those type of lines. There is some science, but every player patch is so different. And the problem is everybody wants a 17-year-old wonder kid. Well, actually, Bobby Reed took a lot longer than probably even Joe did, to be totally honest, and went to Cheltenham and could barely get a game. It doesn't mean they're bad players. They just need those learning experiences. Um, and and like I mean Anton Semenya, when I went back, I mean I've read so many stories claiming Anton Semenya, right? It's amazing how certain people found him and developed him, and yeah, and maybe maybe so. But Anton was in a college program that um, Trev and, and uh, Tins and that watched, and thought that actually there was a value to him coming in. And all of a sudden, because of the environment, he took off. Because when he came in on trial, he wasn't that good. He was decent. And then all of a sudden, playing with better players and maybe having coaching and whatever else it was, just set him off completely. So I, I think players can surprise you all the time, all the time. And, and there's no point in saying somebody's better than somebody else because actually in the end, it could change so much. Yeah, there's, there, there doesn't seem to be a one-size-fits-all to, to when someone's going to develop because obviously, you know, boys develop all at different ages, don't they? And and it, obviously a lot depends on um, mentors they've got, you know, their their, their background. And uh, there's so many variables to consider. But to be fair, Patch, I mean, Dave's made a good point there. It is something we recommend, you know, certainly my job going in and supporting clubs. And we recommend clubs to do this, to track their players because... You know, if, if you track your successful players, and like Dave said, that varies, so many of them vary. They're all, they're all different, of course they are. But, you know, you track Bobby Reed and see how he's got to where he's got to, how many reserve games, how many youth games, how many loans. At some point, you will find a boy in your academy currently who is similar to Bobby, you know, and, and you can match him up and you can say, well, this is what we did with Bobby Reed, or this is what we did with Joe Bryan, or... Joe Edwards or or James Wilson or or whoever it was, you know, whoever it is, you know, and it just gives you a little bit of a, it's just a little bit more help and a little bit more um, of something to um, you know help progress your players. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, um, one final question on on the the, the current. Bristol City crop you've mentioned obviously you work with Riley Taylor and you mentioned Dave that there's some other players coming through can you give us a couple of names of players we can look out for in the coming seasons yeah I think um, I watched a game the other night I thought Alex, Alex Scott looked outstanding I thought he looked really bright I mean John will remember some of these because they were signed years ago but Eamon Benner used to look really really useful um, I think there's a boy in midfield called Dylan Kadji who if with the right development and, and patience, he's like he could be a powerhouse in the middle of midfield. Um, similar to Tyreek, probably more powerful as a runner, if I'm being honest, from what I've seen. But um, 
there's there's a few, but it, I mean, Bristol City got so many. I mean, when I left a year ago, um, for every schoolboy age group, they had two, three, four real hot prospects. So I think the production line's um, in full flow there at the moment. Oh, well, it's been absolutely great chatting to you guys about this. And there's so much, so much knowledge and uh, stories to be told. But um, I guess we just want to come on to uh, the where are you now section. Um, let's go to John first. So, 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 John, do you want to just explain your current role and, and what, what you get up to on a daily basis? Yeah, um, uh, eight years ago, I think it was, I, I departed Ashton Gate. And um, I was offered a job with the EFL, with the English Football League. So uh, basically what I do now, Patch, I go in and monitor football clubs to make sure that they're working to the rules and regulations of the EFL and the Premier League and uh, make sure their coaching programmes are in place and all their finances and every, basically everything to do with youth development. So I go in and monitor clubs and make sure that they're, you know, that they're doing everything right. But I, I, the biggest part of my job is really to go in and support football clubs. So I go in and really support the academy managers and the coaching staff and, and all the staff at the clubs. And of course, with the, with the experience that I've had um, working in football all my life, it's, it's, it's just a perfect kind of fit, you know, at the moment. And um, it's just, a, 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 you know, the AFL get a lot of stick, but it's a fantastic company, I have to say. You know, they look after their uh, staff brilliantly. I mean, you can imagine, look, they've got 72 clubs, Every single one of them with different opinions. It's a difficult. It's a difficult job to to, to run the program. You know the uh, football league program, and um, but it's good people. And I have to be honest, really, really good people at, at the EFL. And uh, it's a great privilege working for them. I have to say that. But I do miss my days at Bristol City. I must say because it was the it was the 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 happiest time we had so much fun and working with, with all those great players. Oh God, I've never laughed so much. We had, you know, to, to, to produce great players and to have great fun like we did. It was uh, super. And you must obviously doing that job, you must see academies at, at various stages of their journey. Obviously some have just started out, some are more mature. And yeah. I think we, we, we touched on it with, with Brian in terms of there's different levels of academies, isn't there as well? So, you know, you, yeah. you, you must see a quite, quite a right, wide range of, of, of where they are in their journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, there's four categories of academy. Uh, Dave's category one with Southampton, um, going down to category four, I'm just trying to think of a couple of Category 4. Barnet were a Category 4 academy. They've obviously gone out of the league now. But uh, So Category 2 and 3 are mainly uh, football league academies, although we have, I think we've got six or seven Category 1s at the moment, including Derby County and Nottingham Forest and clubs like that. Mm. So um, so there's, there is a variation patch, yeah, no, no doubt. Um, the one thing I'll say is, the amount of players that is being, you know, quality players that are coming through the system is unbelievable. And if I was English now, I would be jumping up and down because seriously, I see it week in, week out, and so does Dave. And I'm looking at clubs in your championship and division one and division two academies. And even there, the amount of players, really good quality players who are going to come through and play league football and looking at England's national team, I mean, if England, I said this to Dave the other day, but if England don't win a World Cup within the next couple, I will be amazed, seriously, because they have got so many good young players in that squad and coming through. It is frightening. Um, so, you know, thankfully for the Premier League and the EFL and the triple, the E-Triple P being put in place, football in this country is absolutely buzzing at youth level, I, I, I think. Great. Uh, that's, oh, that's great to hear uh, as, a, as an Englishman. And John, you're more than welcome to be an Englishman during the World Cup as well. Hey, we qualified. We've qualified. <laughs> and we will be down at Wembley. I've got the date. I'm booking my ticket. And, you know, I think the last time we played there, we actually beat you there. John, you must have been you must have been an early category for a job as well, actually, looking at you now. <laughs> Talk about me. I'm about... I'm about... I'm, a, I'm about... 10, 10 cases down the line from, from a mere jab, mate, I tell you. Actually, I tell you, I had it two weeks ago. Okay. Well, at least you're safe. It'll be, uh, 
it'd be fantastic to to meet you on the terraces at, at that game at Wembley, John. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we load on. Yeah. Um, and, and Dave, I mean, one of the one of the best academies in the last 20, 30 years is, is Southampton. So tell us where you are now. Yeah, so I'm at Southampton. So I, I'm i actually leading the 23s or head game coach. Um, and I, I left Bristol City 18 months ago, which was probably the hardest professional decision I had to make. Um and 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 one, I'm really grateful to the club for giving me the second opportunity to go back and one it, it made me better. Um, going to Southampton, I have to say, when I'm on here, I'm a manager, I thought I was an okay coach, only okay, not not very good, but okay. And then I watch our our manager now, and all my days, the guy is a genius. So I've been really lucky. We played. We play some crazy level teams, Monaco, Feyenoord in the Premier League Cups, and then to play Man City, Chelsea, Man United, Arsenal, and test myself against some of the best youth coaches in the country has been been really, really good. I've learned so much. It'll make me much better for the future. So, yeah, so I'm very privileged. Again, like John, I... I think there's loads of really, really good football clubs. Bristol City is an amazing football club. Southampton is an amazing football club. And and Watford, where I worked before, was an amazing football club. So I've been really, really privileged with the jobs I've had and, and very grateful. Um, and, and this one challenges me every day. I mean, I, I have a staff, my own staff of around 12, 13 people. So I don't just manage my group of players. I've got to manage my group of staff. And it's, it's made me miles better at my job, that's for sure. Yeah, and um, obviously I, I had a comment from Mr. Brian Tinian about you as well. Um, he said, Horse is one of the best coaches I've worked with and it was sad to le- sad to lose him. So um, both, uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast. It's been great to, to talk through. Um, so much experience, so many great times at Bristol City and uh, thanks very much for coming on. Hope you guys have enjoyed reminiscing. Yeah, amazing. Great to see you back. Thanks a lot. Dave, look after yourself, buddy. I'll speak to you soon. And you, mate. Take care. Coming up soon on Robins Reunited. Um, in the next week, I've got two booked in. So we're going to have Steve Phillips and Matty Hill as a combo. And then we've got an Easter special. So we've got, imagine an Easter egg. You get the two hollow pieces on the side. So you've got Scott Murray and Lewis Carey. And in the middle... Tony Thorpe. So Whoa. coming up in the next week, uh, that's what you're going to hear here on Three Peeps in a Podcast. So please do subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, that will appear in your subscribed podcasts page very soon. So once again, thank you, John. Thank you, Dave. And we will be back soon. Take care. White walls, the feeling of home, warm smiles, the crash and burn.